everyone, and welcome to the broadcast. I'm Greg Bendian, and each week we are delving into some of the more creative aspects of music making, the, the creative process itself, and pr music production, and mu music composition, and so many different aspects that maybe don't get talked about enough on such podcasts, but we do it here. And genre is, is not an issue. We're open to everything over here. And that's why it's such a pleasure to have with us today my very special guest, Miguel Atwood Ferguson. He is a violinist. He's a violist. He's a multi-instrumentalist. He's a composer. He's an arranger. He's an educator. And he is my friend. I'm so glad to welcome him to talk with me about music. Miguel, how are you? I'm excellent. It's good to see you. You're looking good. Thanks. You are as well. Thank you. Fatherhood suits you. Thank you. I'm learning a lot and enjoying the process. It is a process. You know, it's so interesting because you're starting a process that I started 20 years ago. And it changed my life in a huge way. And my sense of time changed. Mm. My sense of time on a micro and macro level changed, never really to be changed since. It sort of got aligned. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the, the way we were before we were uh, conjoined to other beings, you know, and, and the way we behaved was quite different. So this is, you know, I'm looking at you, you're laughing. That's great. <laughs> because that's the thing right and so now how are you going to do it becomes the thing because this is the, now the best part of all will be from this point on i guarantee you so it just becomes that thing and, and how how little sleep can you can you handle <laughs> yeah. yeah so sebastian is 10 months old and he started sleeping through the night maybe about three and a half months ago, something like that. And that's when, you know, I started to like feel like, uh, you know, my, my health or like just, you know, my sanity, my life kind of come back to me, started pulsating on, a, you know, a, a more grand level. But oh, yeah. since he's been sleeping through the night, uh, I'm able to have better quality work. And, you know, I'm, I'm so foolish. I thought that, oh yeah, having, having a child is going to be a huge commitment. And, you know, I, I just won't tour as much and, you know, I really want to be present and, but then there's this global pandemic. <laughs> so on top of that, I, I didn't equate for there being a global, so it's been a great year, actually. Um, You've been busy, March. right? It, say it again? You've been busy. I've been extremely busy. I'm, I'm extremely busy and things are, are all working out, but I had no idea that on top of having a child, there'd be a global pandemic. So my point being, it's been quite a challenge to have that time to work and then be my, be my best, most refreshed self when I have that time to work so I can, you know, do the, the best work. So it's working out. I'm not complaining, but I'm, I'm thankful that we have an amazing nanny. That's great. You know, I'm getting ready for, for our meeting today. We've been talking about doing this for a while, and uh, we finally our, our stars have aligned here. So 
we're gonna we're gonna jam. But I was thinking about I, I wanted to tell people about how we first met because it was such a cool and to this day such a memorable encounter. And and I'll I'll say why at the end. But basically, what happened was uh, I had decided that my fiftieth birthday concert celebration should be in Los Angeles, even though I'm from New York. And I wanted it to be with my friends and my collaborators from this circle of musicians that I love from the LA scene that was so welcoming to me in the late eighties and ever since, and be able to celebrate my, my musical world on my 50th. And I started to look at the different projects that I wanted to have on this event. And one of them was to have, my string music performed in some form because uh, of all the chamber music that I write, my favorite music is string music. I just have a ton of string music in all different forms, violin, solo, viola, cello, duo, uh, you know, all the combinations, string orchestra. I love strings. It's sort of my, my spirit animal as a, as a violin, maybe even a viola. But, but this kind of thing, uh, when, Vinnie Golia, I believe, says to me, call Lauren Baba. Uh, and then Lauren, uh, I said, Lauren, can you get uh, violinist Lauren Baba, composer, great arranger? She was able to call you, Miguel Atwood Ferguson, and Artyom Manukian, the cellist. And I was walking into this rehearsal at Lauren's apartment, knowing I had sent the music in advance. But not knowing, of course, you, you never really know until you walk into a room, what's the collaborative vibe? What's the collective vibe? Right? So this was memorable to me because, first of all, y'all LA guys are so much more chill than the New York guys. Oh, really? In my experience, okay? I came up with some intense motherfuckers, you know, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, you know, playing in basements on Avenue C. I'm not exaggerating, you know, with like John Zorn and William Parker and all these motherfuckers. So that kind of thing gets to be for an easygoing guy like me. I mean, I have a level of intensity, but like in the 80s to be looking at that. And in my mind, the Lower East Side, even when I was living down there for a time, it always seemed cloudy to me. It was just a very, very, very intense and sort of brooding time. We were getting music done. It was very creative, but it was just... And then I started going to Los Angeles. And it was a different vibe, and it, it, it suited me so well. And I started collaborating, and I had my band Interzone there with the Klein Brothers, and I had a, another group, right? So when, when I found that there was this next generation of guys that we're doing this in LA, where it's bringing it all together. And it's about collaboration. And you're a composer, but you're an arranger, but you're a performer at that time. And you're thinking when you improvise as, as we all did as composers, you're contributing your best shit to other people's stuff all the time. And it's very collaborative. It's very communal in best case scenarios, right? When I saw you guys doing that, and you asked me for my piece. Well, we did two pieces of mine. One was Walkin', which was for Christopher Walkin'. And I talked to you guys about 
the image of what a good dancer Christopher Walken is. Mm. And the idea of like, this is actually about how he dances. It wasn't necessarily, a, it was sort of music to accompany him dancing. He's a, he's a badass dancer. So he's a hoofer, as my dad would say. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that, and then Plane of Jars. And I think that you knew the reference of, of the, the Plane of Jars, or, or did you ask me what it was? I think I asked you. Yeah, and like that, because you were like trying to get an image, and, and I knew that that's, you heard the sounds, and mm -hmm. you, you sort of heard the verticalities, and you heard what was happening as soon as you, you had your part, but you guys, it's a, it's a triadic piece. And just that kind of thing, when, when the vibe is so, we're here for the music. What, you know, and also that it's fun. And, and you, you know, just, I remember your excitement and just, you know, your, your positive energy just beaming out in this trio. And I thought, that's what I, I always want from a viola player. But it was more than that. It was, that's what I want from a musician. Thanks, Some of that's so present for the music. It's like dealing on so many levels at the same time. And you get off on that. Yeah. You and know it, that? It that have suffered in these uh, <laughs> various uh, ways. Like as a composer, I when I write something, I know ideally how I would like others to interpret it. And I care about their experience. So I really hope that they have a good time. And I'm trying to bring meaning to their life in a way that uh, resonates with them. And so I know what it's like when that happens and when it doesn't and <laughs> everything in between. And I know what it's like to be a performing musician. Uh, you started I, very young, right? Yeah, I was four when I started on violin and so took consistent lessons. Uh, musical household. Musical household, yes. My, my dad is a genius pianist and uh, composer um has has written uh, quite a lot of music and um wrote some hits for the carpenters as well and played at a james band um what did he write for the carpenters uh give, give me a second uh, it was it was a hit um that the title will come to me in a, in a second oh, okay cool i uh, also played in johnny otis's band uh would play keyboards and and guitars and my mother was a special ed teacher but both of them played um, records in the house, just very diverse records, lots of Motown. So it was all around me. Yeah. Um, You're the One is the, the song that my dad wrote that the Carpenters had a hit on. Cool. Yeah, it's, we grew up in similar households. You know, my father was a, a visual arts guy and a, uh, a art teacher. And he sculpted, he painted, he was a, a lover of art and film and music. So, you know, we had crazy amounts of jazz in the house. Uh, I was just telling Dave Liebman this, that we had uh, Brilliant Corners uh, by Thelonious Monk was probably one of the first records I heard as a, a young infant. Whoa. So I didn't, you know, I'm sort of coming to terms with that slash the fact that you are an early early starter like me slash the fact that when i was five in 1968 my mom took me to see that movie behind us although that is the the italian version but of course 
that is Planet of the Apes. Wow. And my mom thought it was a nature pick. Uh, it was like a documentary about apes. And then we sat there with the <laughs> ape tonal music with all of the image. Uh, when the ape pulls out a, a gun, you know, when you finally see the first arrival of the apes with the gun, I'm five years old and it's dissonant music. And I'm being approached with atonal sounds and electronic processing at the age of five with this image. And that was it. Like, I think that goes, that's it. Because at that point, my visual to sound connection thing is locked in for the rest of my life. I have room in my early brain for asymmetrical sound stuff. So I'm not like locked into some sort of formulaic idea of music. I, I'd already been busted open with, with atonality from D Jerry Goldsmith. And then, so coming down the pike, wh why wouldn't I study all forms of composition and all ways of organizing music? And, and I, I sort of look at it as predestined. But, but that's also the culture of our household. It's the culture of that moment. You know, we're lucky to be born into households where when we didn't have the internet, we had our parents' record collection. We're going to gigs. But I remember you saying that you remember sounds from in utero? Definitely, yeah. Uh, and the feeling of those sounds. I was gonna say a second ago, I think it would have been possibly a different story for you if your introduction to, for instance, 12 tone music was by someone or, or something not nearly as masterful because even though I've enjoyed that series uh, and, and that music before, when you reintroduced me to um, that series a couple years ago and I got the box set, that was one of the highlights in music for me in the last five years. And I just have one highlight after another. And so I'm forever indebted to you for reintroducing me to the music um, of Planet of the Apes. Uh, I can't get enough of it. It's so good. But my point is, if that was your introduction to that style of music, to this day, no matter how how much, you know, Schoenberg or, you know, Stravinsky when he wrote in that style or other composers that write, I, I still kind of prefer the Planet of the Apes. And he... But however, uh, I was, I wanted to tie this back to Webern because uh -huh. I really feel that, that he's the iconoclast in that group. And he's as much as, of course, Schoenberg is credited, I think Webern becomes a touchstone for, for later people, even like Morton Feldman. Definitely. And I think that that is universally accepted, what you just said. You know, I'm not. I would hope. I, I did, from the little I know, uh, that's what it seems like people agree upon. But my point is, what if you heard 12 tone music that wasn't as masterful? I wonder and how your trajectory might have been different. Maybe, maybe you wouldn't have. I don't know. I also remember uh, Fantasia has the uh, second part of La Sacra on uh, the dinosaurs. So it's the Disney dinosaurs and the dinosaurs are dying during right of the spring. And I remember uh, being, I guess I would have been around the same age 
And it was at my dad's school, they were showing it. So my mom brought me to see it at my dad's school. So I was confronted with Stravinsky chords and that music, dun, 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 right? And the dinosaurs are dying and I freaked out completely and I had to be removed. That's awesome. <laughs> So I kind of go like, what, what, what am I? So that's what I'm responding to my whole life. And I think that we are kind of looking at, we, we're sort of, what was it the word? We, we were genetically predisposed somehow to this experience. And, you know, uh, also lucky enough to be old enough. I think, how old are you now? 40. Okay, cool. All right. So you're, you're old enough to remember how things were before it got crazy in terms of uh, velocity of music and all of that going through. Uh, so it was much more a home-based thing. So we're going to be like old school guys, right? Yeah, I mean, it depends how you define that too. But, you know, I... I have nothing against uh, electronic music, but you know, I, I grew up in Topanga Canyon around, you know, lots of wood in a wooden house, and you know, my viola is is wood. Um, I have a very positive connection hmm. with uh, electronics. I think they're also organic instruments, and that's that's how I define them. You know, it's it's what we it's how we play an instrument is how, what defines our experience. Uh, to me more than the innate properties of it, but that's just my own, you know, definition. But uh, yeah, old school, you know, it depends how one defa uh, defines old school. So uh, if it means like pre-internet uh, or pre-computers where somebody can have no quote-unquote musical training, but make a lot of music via just their computer, you know, maybe that's one way somebody might define old school now, but 10 years ago, they wouldn't define it that way. So it's, it's, that's an interesting topic is how does one define what old school is? How old, how old is your dad? He just turned 70. That's old school. <laughs> <laughs> Was that helpful? <laughs> that's old school, Miguel, right? Yeah. So, and we, and and we respect it, and and so you're 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 brought up with that. I'm brought up with that. My my dad would have been uh, above eighty at this. He'd been eighty two, but so so like you know, just having had sort of the touch on that, and your frame of musical reference is so wide, and that becomes your musical imagination and your musical life, classical also classical maybe not the music of your time and i always say this to myself what what is the music of my time because we were playing bach for bach cello suites for marimba and i'm saying what's the point here you know i get that it's it's very well it's put together it's beautiful but what is the music of my time and how do you define your time just how do you define your time and i always thought it was from the moment of my birth, maybe a little bit before that, but from the moment of my birth, I'm accepting sounds so that now that I find out that I have musical memories from the age of two and three, so that would be put me in like 
64, 65, 66. I'm hearing Revolver by the Beatles when it first comes out at the age of three, taking it in, banging on pots and pans with it, responding to it in real time. So I'm experiencing 60s and 70s explosion in all the different areas, including the Eastern philosophy, which comes through in the Indian music. And then we start you know, thinking about Buddhism. We start thinking about the East. And this is the beginning of that in America. I mean, obviously, there's things that happened before that. But the big movement, and, and I talked with Dave Liebman and so many of those guys about this period where there's that explosion of looking outward and looking inward. And what that meant to the music and how that manifested in forward-looking music, bringing together fusions of different areas of music, all the music we love. It's an ethos, right, Miguel? Big time. Yeah. <laughs> all I can say is I agree. It sounds to me like the particular expansion you're talking about is specifically connected to Ravi Shankar. Is that the specific expansion you're talking about right now? Well, yeah. So that moment where, I mean, yes, in fact, my dad took us to see Ravi Shankar with Ala Raka at a local college. I couldn't have been 10. I was probably eight or nine. And that happened. And likewise, he took us to see Stan Kenton at a local high school in the auditorium. And so I got to see Kenton. My dad, you know, he was real fan, real fan. So, but that kind of thing was valuable to me, but not valuable to other of my peers or my siblings. That was just something that happened with me and my dad. Uh, other people could tag along, but my dad and I were like, locked on this thing and he would then he, we started telling telling him to come to shows and he would come to see other stuff he always came to gigs you know so that that's old school to me is like if you say you're a music fan you know you're a music fan and and you have really good taste and you have discerning taste and you have interests and you know you understand what a good rhythm section is it, you know my parents weren't musicians but like they knew what good singers were <laughs> yeah, it's a really interesting phrase, and I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong way to define old school, but I will point out that one common thing that I hear from a lot of people, regardless of what their age is, is they refer to old school as being roughly 30 to 60 years uh, before this time now, whatever that time now is, or roughly... 20 to 40 years before they were born is another way. It seems like that a lot of people refer to old school that way. You know, when I refer to old school, for me, it just has to do more with um, having integrity and having a depth of quality, whether it's like a quality of sound or quality of uh, engineering or the architecture of the music. Um, so, Again, That's old school. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. like so, so solid, you know, where it's just having the utmost integrity and not selling out on any level, but trying to have the uh, as much energy put into authenticity as, as possible. I also had a memory for you that I think you'd appreciate. I bought the 45, the single, of the theme from Shaft, 
by wow. Isaac Hayes when it came out. And I believe it's 72 is Shaft. I don't know. I know you did the music for, for Luke Cage. You worked on that extensively. And I, I wanted you to know how important those early black exploitation soundtracks were for me as a kid growing up outside of New York in the 70s. That was my soundtrack of the 70s. So like that Isaac Hayes thing with the Wawa Watson stuff and the extended instrumental on a single before the vocals even come in. I'm living that in real time, man. So I'm damaged from that. You know, it's like that. That means that you could do anything you want. That was proof. Nobody told Isaac Hayes he couldn't do that. The people decided it was hip at the time and they bought the records. <laughs> yeah. I love that soundtrack though. Yeah. And, and also Superfly Curtis Mayfield. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, th those are two of the greatest visionaries in my opinion uh, of those genres and of that time for sure. You know, I see a lot of uh, these great works as being, jumping off points for us too um i'd like to you know you said a comment a couple minutes ago about how these recordings exist kind of in our consciousness growing up and i think you might have said something along the lines of they define um or something like that and i feel like uh you're right in a way to describe that is they're kind of like exits on you know off ramps on a, on a, a freeway and then we have our own relationship with these jumping off points. And, you know, as young people, we, we're discovering, you know, who we are and we're developing our artistry. It, it's, it's fun to uh, mimic, not to copy, um, but to just use it as a jumping off point to get in touch with our own identity. And, you know, you're right. It's and that's been my journey for over 35 years on on the scene is doing different ways of challenging myself, mm. but also addressing my interests in very specific ways. So the music of the Mahavishnu Orchestra became a project, you know, uh, mm. the, the music of Eric Dolphy became a project, Wow. you know, uh, the music of Cecil Taylor obviously was uh, a project that came to fruition with me playing in his band. So it was always very specifically, what are my interests? And I've only ever done what are my interests. Uh, and they're weird and varied, but at the same time, something happened in the 60s and 70s that made it per permissible that you could follow your thing. And, you know, uh, I, I have to thank... Pat Matheny, who, when we were doing the sign of four with Derek Bailey said to me, I, I look at what you're doing and I think it's going to take 30 years for it all to make sense to people. Hmm. And, and it was sort of like a, a, an encouraging thing and a death sentence at the same time, you know, but that idea that, you know, people know you for one thing, they hmm. don't know for your other thing. People know you for this thing. They don't know that you're doing that thing. Not that it matters that much, but the idea is, I think we were very inclusive in the 60s and 70s. And I think the spirit of that, of connecting with people and smile on your brother, everybody get together, that was very real to us. 
And to carry that forward to this moment is very important because I see what people are going through right now. And I teach young people in college age, and I'm trying to offer a very positive experience that has an idea of history to see that we can maybe learn from what has happened and move forward. And also that it be less afraid knowing that we were able to work through some things and people have risen above and made things happen to get us out of bad situations. And that one of the possible outcomes is a good one at all times. Yeah, and to have confidence that no matter how uh, incredibly difficult and sad and confusing things are or can be, and worse, how they can be much worse too, we always have the ability to do something positive with it and to learn something from it. That alone is great. I think that's one reason why we're attracted to both being a composer and also an improviser. Yeah. You know, like one of the, the roots, uh, to, I don't know if it's the Latin or the Italian, um, improvisare, I mean, obviously sounds Italian, is to uh, reveal the unseen. You know, um, and, and so there's something unwritten. I know some people think that everything's already destined or something like that. And, you know, I can respect that, but that doesn't, quite make total sense to me. I think um, we do have the ability to have a huge say, at least, uh, in writing the script of our own life. And to whatever degree uh, I may be incorrect or correct, I do think that is one aspect of improvising that we are really attracted to, at least, and collective um, improvisation as well. And, even you, you was it Stravinsky or uh, that said that, or was it Bach? Uh, said that uh, composing is improvising slowed down. Stravinsky, I think, said that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so it's so similar to imp improvising, you know. So. Well, and I've always worked both sides of the equation, and I've always wanted mixes of, and different amounts of things, and uh, totally free, all the way up to one person follow the leader all the way up to completely written out and I hope ideally uh, played well. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's the thing. And, and so those, those things have kind of not changed. Um, although there's a lot more self-help going on right now and, and in terms of uh, us sending each other tracks back and forth and, and overdubbing at home. And, and, you know, and that's been in some ways very liberating. Uh, you miss the collaborative immediacy, but you do still have collaborative energy going on and I've really appreciated that uh, particularly with Mike Keneally recently oh wow uh, some stuff with him with mallet instruments which I you know did a big arrangement for percussion ensemble arrangement to uh, to work over this improvised form that we had come up with bass uh, bass and drums him on bass and me playing drum set and so we're you know building tracks on this this is for his new album that's coming out in a couple months and, uh, you know, that, that ability to record at home now has gotten us through this terrible, dark situation. So I feel very fortunate that, that that's happening and that I can talk to, to great musicians like yourself and, and keep this, the energy flowing across the country, across the ocean, you know, uh, and that's really what it's all about right now for me. And, uh, 
you know, so many of the people that you've collaborated with of your more or less age group of, of musicians has been so inspiring to me to, to see that you guys are still doing this, you know, you and, and, and Robert Glasper and Flying Lotus and Kamasi Washington and uh, Anderson Pack and uh, Thundercat. You know, these guys mean a lot and you're on all their stuff and you're part of that sound, which to me was all the stuff that we did in the 70s really landed. It really took root. All that stuff that, that, that happened before is continued in this new, exciting vein, imaginative guys. They're just turning 40, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's very inspiring to me. That's and so, beautiful. you know, I'm very happy to see that, that you guys are doing so well and that you're, you're, you're still making music. Uh, tell me about one of my favorite artists that, that I know you've collaborated with, Erica Badu. Uh, she, she reminds me of my favorite singer, all-time singer, which is Billie Holiday. She's so cool. She's just the coolest. I don't know her well. We only hung out one day and played one concert together. It was- You've arranged for her in other settings, right? Um, I arranged for her, um, on like her third or fourth to last album, just on one song but I don't even think she heard it. It didn't even get to her. And um, I don't, it wasn't on the album. Um, she's come up to me before and, and come up right to my face saying like, I want to work with you. And I'm like, great, well, I'm here and you can, <laughs> we can work together whatever you want. Um, but the one time we really collaborated was when The Roots did a big orchestral concert in Texas a couple years ago and I did the bulk of the arranging for the concert and I conducted the concert and she was one of um, a handful of special guests and she was just she has this a very laid-back approach and she's immensely skilled and it's so easy to get lost in technique right there's just so many, I think it's one of the things that we love, uh, the, the challenge of and being an artist is how can we not lose our original like intent and how can we uh, celebrate as much magic as possible and not get eaten up by any of these other pitfalls of which there are many. And, you know, I think she does a great job of, of transcending uh, these things and just provides people with a, a magical experience. You know, she only on that one concert, she maybe only performed two songs, but she had a costume change <laughs> in between both songs. And uh, she, uh, she has amazing tone, you know, yeah, she does one thing that uh, an amazing rhythm. Uh, one thing that I am so grateful for, is it seems to me, Greg, that we as human beings have the ability to potentially always improve our hearing, even as we're losing our hearing. Beethoven, all of his music before he lost his hearing is amazing, is masterful, is genius, in my opinion. Once he lost his hearing, it 
I prefer that music much more. Mm. And it speaks to my soul so much more and, and, and speaks to, you know, my whole psyche and just in every aspect of it is just so incredible. And so my point is to, to hear deeper doesn't mean that it's only connected to how good, you know, our physical hearing is. It's like, what is, do we have space in our psyche and in our soul to, to actually hear deeper? And uh, I think Erica Badu is one of amazing, one of many amazing artists that is uh, hearing very, very deeply. And uh, even in her voice, I think that there's uh, kind of like a symphonic element within her voice. I think a lot of the great singers have that. You know, I know um, Oscar Peterson told Mogru Miller, who told my friend Joe Clayton, that, you know, think of the, the, the piano as, as, as an orchestra. Yes. You know, and that was a, a major part of their concept. And I think any great um, instrumentalist or singer does that with their instrument. You know, kind of like earlier you were talking about how uh, people such as you and I try to always think as a composer. And we also always try to think as a producer. Yeah. You know, and then also with our instrument, we always try to think of each note, kind of like B.B. King is a great example that, you know, all you need is one note. And if you really, really just say everything you want to say with that one note, you can get so much out of that one note. And along those lines, treating uh, in terms of the tone and the sound, the sonic qualities of that one note can represent like a whole orchestra of sounds. And uh, I, I get to that. say this probably every episode now, but Cecil Taylor taught me, you must make one note sing. So that's like, I think I was 18 or younger. It's in Downbeat Magazine, I think. You know, we were following, that's when that would, ha would happen. <laughs> yeah, you have Cecil Taylor's on the cover of Downbeat. All right. So we would read this stuff and that was working toward understanding what, where he's coming from, you know? And so then when I get to play with him, it wasn't about trying to sound like the drummers that had come before him. He knew that he wanted somebody to do something different at that point. So I started bringing more of like a contemporary classical thing and prepared drum set and, and definitely influenced by Goldsmith percussion preparation things. And he was totally into that. And so it, it just shows that like these guys, they're always open and, and we, they teach us to, to remain open to possibilities and, and to hear on a deeper level where, you know, they're not worried if somebody, you know, uh, black, white or Hispanic, they're thinking, you know, can that guy play and what's that guy's sound and what's that person's sense of time? because I studied with Steve McCall that from, from the group air that I'm sure people will know. He was also was in Cecil's group, AACM drummer. And Steve McCall played in Cecil's group, probably two drummers before me. So it was like Steve, then it was Tony Oxley. And then it was me. Tony Oxley. Yeah. Tony Oxley, Cecil and, and William was the group right before I came in. And then I said to Cecil, so Cecil, because Steve had just died when I was early in Cecil's band, and he and I said, Cecil, what was it like playing with Steve to get a perspective from why Cecil would have Steve in the band? And he said, the time. And that was all he said. 
and I knew that that was happening with Steve on the on those air records, you know, with Threadgill and Hopkins. Those records, you you got to check out what Steve's doing because no other free jazz drummer was playing with that kind of swing and funk and humor and tone. You know, uh, uh, that black Slingerland kit that he had and the you know the the ride symbol with a nail stuck in it so for the sizzle like that's that i witnessed that while i was in high school they played it at the local college with william patterson university and i asked could i study with steve and he said you know i'm coming to new york uh when i get to new york here's call this number and i found the card and it's handwritten Steve McCall with his phone number. And he was staying with Ambrose Jackson, who's on that early Marion Brown stuff on trumpet. Wow. Touching these strands of history, Miguel, and it just, you know, it meant so much. And, uh, you know, so that when you get an opportunity to, to, to play and, and do your thing, like, I just feel like it's rocket fuel, you know? It just like, it propels you to go and do your own thing. And then they hear it and they go, okay, cool. We, we, get, we check you out, okay, keep doing that. And I'm saying that to you right now. I really uh, agree with that. And I think that we're able to go so much further when we don't have to be tethered to tradition, but being really intimately, not only aware of, but appreciative of traditions you know, it's one thing for somebody that has no musical training to make something amazing, but then what happens? You know, and for someone to continue to uh, grow, I'm not saying that they necessarily uh, need training, but I just think that there needs to be a continued growth. And it's just one, it's one beautiful way, it's my favorite way to fuel um, my growth and to like really solidify my foundation uh, as a human being and in the arts, uh, being as aware as possible uh, of traditions and then trying to see it as like a conversation and then add something to the conversation, even though I don't, even though I'm not a master yet, even though I may never be a master, I'm still going to do my best to try to be as integritous and just jump in and find find a way, commit to uh, good music, commit to meaningful moments and work your ass off and uh, try to be as kind as possible. But it's fun, it's so challenging. And you know, to back up a second, you, you were bringing up so many beautiful topics, one of them being making music for one's time and I mentioned Beethoven a minute ago. Beethoven has that famous quote when he was writing some of his late quartets, which are definitely some of my favorite music. Mm -hmm. And some of the critics um, were giving him hell. And I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he's like, I don't care what you guys say. I'm not writing that music for you. I'm writing that music for an audience 200 years from now which is about right now <laughs> yeah <laughs> so yeah, think about what like early Webern performances were like they must have been a nightmare you know and then think about when Debussy is doing his thing 
just how much did people really love that? Because if they're freaking out about Lissaka and they're freaking out about Desaires in, in the late 50s by Verez in Paris, you know, there's a lot there's a lot of just like straight ahead, go down the middle thing. And then these guys become, you know, I believe should be viewed as real outsiders and real provocateurs, but also addressing moments in their time where Verez brings in the sound of the city. You know, where you have Elliot Carter is going to bring in the sound of the city because he's from New York. You have these guys, Charles Ives is, is at the turn of the century and he's looking at modernism from the previous century. So, you know, you have that, always have that pull of backwards forwards. You better, you know, it's because that's tethering you, but it's also, it's projecting you. Uh, and I always felt that. I always felt like, you know, down to your how the way you play, you know, I'd be like, well, my snare role is derived from a sort of a, a hybrid between Steve McCall and Buddy Rich. I can put it on a spectrum to you, you know, like I thought about what I'm carrying forward, but I'm not going to play, you know, traditional grip anymore. It's like only match script from the age of whatever it was, 14 because that was what I was going to use. Like, so all these things are like, you're in a, in a historical refraction chamber, you know, and, and if you're lucky, you'll get good teachers, you'll get a good parent, you'll get a good school experience, right? Yeah, and then I also think that there's a lot of merit in the approach to, I've, I've heard various people like Isaac Stern say that uh, a good teacher is somebody that shows the student how to be their own best teacher. Um, and I, I, I really like that. And I definitely want to learn forever. And I want to expand. And I think approaching uh, something like freshness or even quality in product, can we can tie that back to just growth and the, the enjoyment of growth. So it seems to me that if I'm just growing a little bit today, uh, like really growing, actually growing, that's a great thing. And that means, uh, you know, we were talking about listening earlier. To me, that means that I'm actually loving the boundaries of my listening just a little bit. And, you know, the type of listening that we're talking about, I think is really, a, it's a spiritual thing. It's emotional. It's, it's uh, you know, to, it's not just like hearing nothing wrong with hearing but it means to process it means to integrate it means to combine our authenticity with our perception of like i mean it's, there's just so many different levels yeah. to it it's fascinating endless yeah but to be on that path of just like you know uh eternal or just ongoing growth uh i think is it's pretty good. I wanted to ask you about Prokofiev because we haven't really talked about Prokofiev. I know that for both of us, Debussy is immensely important and as it shall always be and it, it's all is right. But I don't know that enough people talk about Prokofiev. And I will tell you that connecting directly to the plane of jars that you played in my string trio, is this thing that I've been responding to ever since, and I don't think I ever got it as right as I did in Plane of Jars, but Prokofiev Opus 39, 
violin, viola, bass. Yeah, the quintet. The quintet. Yeah, G minor. It's not Opus 25? 39. Okay. It's violin, viola, bass, oboe. and then it's oboe, clarinet. Yeah. And it's and it hit me in high school, or junior high school. So it's a complete masterpiece. He originally wrote that for the circus. Oh, I would hope so. You know, that's the thing. It's it's just it captured a moment that I understood moving parts and making things sit while other things move and just uh, all these different types of movement, I think, were, were important to me in the, those those five movements. That is such an amazing piece. And that stayed with me up until that piece that you played with me. How important was that? And, and Miguel, how important is the first string quartet? Is that the F major or is that, no, I think number two is, is F major. Yeah, it's it's the uh, uh, 1931. Oh, okay. Uh, Did you ever so play the, it? Uh, I played the second quartet more than the first. Uh, I think I only played through the first. Um, I, I'm particularly a fan of the, the second quartet. Um, I, I agree with what you're saying with Prokofiev, um, who interestingly enough, died on the same day as Stalin. Oh, I didn't know that. Something like May 6, 1953, something like that. May 9th, 1953. You know, somebody that had such an influence on not only on his his life and artistic life, but so many of his peers. Um, yeah, Prokofiev is, people don't even understand, I don't understand how big of a genius uh, he is. And you were talking about Sounds of the City. If you check out his seventh piano sonata, you can definitely hear, well, the pistons. Uh, and you can you hear these, uh, these huge factories. Um, I think he even talked about that. But so it depends if you think a factory is a part of a, you know, the sound of a city. Um, but the sound of the industrial age. Ferociously so. Um, you know, one of the things that I appreciate most about Prokofiev are his um, his orchestrations and his extreme lows and his extreme highs. Yeah. Um, I just really think that's one of the unique things that Prokofiev brings to the table. You know, he's uh, such a multifaceted genius. And when you think about uh, written out music of the 21st century, you know, he's def definitely my top 10, uh, if not top five. But to this moment, right? Uh, spanning the 21st century? Yeah. Or spanning the 20th century, sorry? Spanning um, from then yeah. till now, I, I still yeah. think the yeah. chamber music of Prokofiev's is important. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I wish he had more chamber music. Um, I, don't, I don't feel like he had um, that much. And I, I wonder what the reason is. Um, Imagine if he wrote some like piano quintets, um, uh, or piano quartets, piano trios. Imagine a Prokofiev piano trio. I don't. I don't think I've heard one before. Um, I don't think so. I know he has like some uh, arrangements of some of his like early works, uh, but I've never heard any anything on record. But a, a Prokofiev piano trio. Oh my God. Uh, but yeah, so the, the string highs, the string lows, like the, the way he would use piccolo and the E flat clarinet, uh, that's really unparalleled or it just, it's very interesting the way he did that and very effective. Yeah. Um, his use of tuba, 
uh, again, the, the lows, um, is just amazing. But that quintet that you talk about, um, I believe it was written in 1925. Um, and it was originally written for like incidental music, um, connected to a circus. So it was, it was supposed to be music that was going to be performed at a circus or in connection to an actual circus event. And that I don't think happened, but the music was written and it's definitely a complete and total masterpiece. Uh, every movement is just com complete genius. Uh, definitely, I think some of his best work. Um, that's so cool that you know about that piece. I don't know why, I mean, it's definitely been played quite a lot. It's a celebrated piece, but when you think about how good it is, I'm surprised that it's not even performed more. I'm glad to hear you say that. It is distinct in that it should be considered a tier. What you're going to put up against it and say is more important than that, particularly from that era. In 25, that stands out. I mean, it's modernist to the point of being uh, illegal in Russia. You know, I mean, it's just, you know what I mean? Wow. It's considered Bolshevik. It's considered bullshit. And they wow. didn't, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't pure. So he he had to do that on the, that's really the reason why is these guys would have non-state accepted music and they had their state accepted music yeah I, I would have freaked out if i had the good fortune to see him play he must have just been just such a, a monstrously awesome pianist uh i think there's a recording of of his uh famous third piano concerto in c major i think there's a recording of him playing that. Um, I, I know more of the recordings of like Rachmaninoff um, uh, and you know some some other genius of genius peers of his. But have you heard many uh, Prokofiev piano recordings? No, I have not. Uh, but I wanted to tell you that at Yale Oral History, there's a recording of Verez at a dinner. Wow conversation talking about oh yeah you guys uh, we used to see wc playing gigs all the time <laughs> in paris yeah like and yet people don't realize what an amazing pianist wc was from the from the guy that was there you know so that's pretty interesting right because that's not that long ago and you go like yeah check that guy wc also had that instrument and he commanded that instrument, and that's why you got that music and everything that you got. Yeah, yeah. There's some piano rolls that have recently been discovered uh, of Debussy. Yeah, I'm excited to to hear those. So, what are you working on? I'm working on my album, Les Jardins Mystique. Um, I'm working on uh, co-producing Thundercat's new album, the orchestral album. Um, I'm working on orchestral concerts for Lotus and Thundercat. Um, my next gig uh, is orchestrating for an amazing Indian artist, um, or someone from India, um, uh, Sid Sriram, amazing uh, singer, composer. Um, but yeah, my main project right now is is my album, Le Jardin Mystique. So um, my first session towards it was in March of 2011. 
and it was a duet session with my buddy Austin Peralta and we had just formed a, a duo around that time and uh, I was playing in groups of his, he was playing in groups of mine and that was my, my first uh, session towards my solo project and I haven't been working on Le Jardin Mystique consistently for 10 years. It's just like a you know session here, session there and I've mainly been working for other people and doing some mic gigs around the world but I have 500 hours of recordings, <laughs> uh, all my original music, and I've just been going through it minute by minute, making notes on everything, very detailed notes on you know what's what and what can I imagine doing with it. And it's actually more like 300 hours, but I am obsessed with reversing all of my music and then messing with the speed and then orchestrating on top of that. And so it's about 500 hours uh, once you do that. Um, and so I have it down to around 48 hours now. And I'm desperately trying to finish volume one. Volume one is going to be two to three um, discs. And then uh, there's going to be a volume two and a volume three all on the Brain Feeder independent record label here in Los Angeles. And it's been what is the, uh, the website for Brain Feeder? I think it's brainfeeder.com. Brainfeeder.com and Miguel Atwood Ferguson.com. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so that's a lot of music, Miguel. I don't know how you can get get it to fit. <laughs> Necessity. So one of my joys has been going on hour-long walks with uh, my 10-month-old harness to my chest. And so I'm getting and with big hills and stuff, so I'm getting a lot of exercise and uh, I, I have my iPod um, and I'm listening to just various takes and just going to my mind thinking about what I'm going to do with this music and uh, I have an incredible mixing engineer Benjamin Tierney and I'm just sending him notes and he's you know send me back mixes and I, uh, I get around okay on Pro Tools but he's a bona fide mixing engineer very talented and so uh, we're both mixing it together but he's you know the one getting the the mixing engineer credit but it's it's amazing to have his help and yeah it's 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 working it's coming out slowly but surely yeah i know it's it's hard to to choose your baby your first babies that are going to come out on, on a certain project but um I think deadlines always always worked in my favor. <laughs> Self-imposed or otherwise. Yeah, deadlines are great. I find that I, I make deadlines when they're for other people. I've already missed like four or five deadlines for myself on this project, like doing everything I could. But it just, I guess I, I won't, I won't say I care too much, but I really want this first one to, be the best I can do. You know, you mentioned Austin Peralta, and I wanted to take a moment because I don't think I ever told you this story, and I'm happy to tell it to everyone. Uh, the last time I saw Alan Holdsworth in public, it was a question and answer with a moderator and then the audience at the cutting room in New York City. It would have been uh probably 
like a year before Alan, maybe two years before Alan passed. And, uh, and he took questions from the audience. And two things came out of that question and answer period. One was, I asked Alan, Alan, it seems as though you have a concept that you employ when you're taking an idea, a musical idea, and when it comes back on repeat, it's in a different key or position. I'm not going to say I didn't want to speak and say key for him because I don't know how he thinks of it, but it's in a different position. Also, second thing that I've noticed a lot in your music is when you get to the blowing section, the chord changes are different than the head and they work in in relationship to the head, but they're again different treatments of different ideas that don't appear in the form of the head, except for a few tunes and I didn't want to bore him. And I said, where did you get that? And he said, I got that from impressionist composers like Debussy and Ravel. When they have an idea and it comes back, it's treated differently and that's the variation of it. That's the form. It's kind of blocks of ideas, you know what I mean? It's scenes and they're positioning them in different lighting, in different texture, right? And so this came from Holdsworth. That, that in itself, glad we, somebody got that on tape. Then somebody asked him about Austin Peralta. And he just started tearing up. And he said he was so great, he had so much promise, and it's a terrible tragedy, tragedy, and he just couldn't go on and talking about it. And eventually, you know, he just kind of pulled himself together to go on to the next question. But uh, that was really something to, to see where that's how a master like Holdsworth felt about Austin. Yeah, maybe my favorite uh, peer all time to, to play with. Um, being somebody that grew up strictly in the classical world, that would be, you know, listening to Motown and Jimi Hendrix and loving other styles of music, but like really focusing on classical and then becoming completely enthralled with jazz uh, is somewhat of a similar path that he had and I'm nowhere near as talented as Austin um, or masterful on my instrument, but I was good enough to where when we got together, it was the most simpatico I've ever experienced. Um, I played with other musicians, you know, like Brian Blade and Billy Higgins, where it just felt like I was being lifted up by the hand of God. But that's just because their benevolence is just so overflowing. They're like, here, you can be in the same room as me. And, and you know, it's just, those are the only two people I've ex felt that with, uh, like that, but on in a, in a similar way, but then also in this like uh, type of um, peer way, uh, Austin and I uh, had that. And uh, the night he died, he called me up uh, maybe about eight hours before he died. And still to this day, I've had this very mystical uh, experience uh, with him where anytime like on the radio uh, or anywhere Schumann or Chopin comes on, I think of Austin 
for a variety of reasons. And so maybe about eight hours, 12 hours before he died, I was driving up to go see my parents in Topanga Canyon. And I was listening to the uh, classical radio station and um, Schumann's symphony came on. So I started instantly thinking of, of Austin. And then about five seconds later, he called me. And so I'm like, I was just thinking about you, bro. And so I told him, and he's like, wow, that's rad. So he's like, yeah, I was just calling, calling up to see if uh, you and your string quartet would open up for me uh, every Wednesday night um, in October or something like that uh, at the Bootleg Theater. And I'm like, oh, hell yeah, that'll be great. Um, and we just had a nice talk. And then I guess it was like the next day, Flying Lotus calls me and, and says that uh, he died. And I screamed. Um, yeah, you know, one of the reasons why my, my first single is for my album is going to be uh, a duet. Uh, it's a 10 minute duet with Austin. Um, Improvised? No, it's a, it's a composition of mine called eudaimonia, which is an ancient Greek word, uh, basically meaning like uh, happiness. Um, and it was a magical session that we did at KPFK here uh, in Los Angeles. And there's other recordings from that session too I'm going to be releasing. They're all my original um, compositions. Um, but it's a very happy uh, golden type of uh, recording where you can, you can sense he's very happy and we're, we're really in a nice place in a nice zone. And I think Austin has a lot of, even though he's so young when he passed, uh, he was like 22 or something like that. 21. I think he was 22 when he passed. Um, but he was so mature and he had so many different sides to him and this particular side I don't think most people got to experience. Uh, indirectly, they did. Um, but anyway, I'm very excited to uh, share this with the world. And it's a way that I can grieve um, and also deal uh, with his passing. So it's, it's a happy thing for me. That's great. I'm looking forward to hearing that. Thank you. Well, you know, you, you mentioned Flying Lotus, and he's another interesting creative figure in this time period. You know, and it's it's another one of, uh, it's a great example of people uh, who will go their own way and do their thing, and it's all encompassing all of your interests. And, I mean, you know, I, my interests include comic books and horror films and, you know, uh, futurism and uh, traditional uh, chants from different countries. I mean, we grew up with the Nonsuch Explorer series, so world music was, was exploding around us, you know. So all of that is, you know, continues to be your world. And if you've traveled the world, as we have, you see all the connections you you see the differences but you see the connections and i don't know i i've always felt that it was a honor to travel and perform music to be an ambassador from one place to another and and look at what's what you learn and take that back to where you go you know more people need to travel apparently so <laughs> okay. so yes so, so 
So I'll just leave that there. But apparently we've traveled. And so that's, you know, that's your life impacts your music, Miguel. And, and, and so, you know, I, I've always loved that when I chose this path, I, I never said I'd, I'd get rich, but I knew I'd never be bored. Mm. And how do you find rich? No, I mean, just in terms of like, if I, I'd make a lot of money, mm -hmm. that was never my intent. My intent was to make a living and never be bored. Yeah. And, and so that's, you know, knock on wood, that's the thing because uh, boredom is death, you know, and, and also I, 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 I'll never get to everything anyway. I mean, when you, when you finally get into your fifties, Miguel, and you're looking at your entire body of interests and your efforts and what counted the most and what, what means the most going forward, because now you're sort of leaning it a little bit and, and focusing a little bit more as you want to go forward. Uh, I feel like I'm writing some slower music than I've ever written in my life. Thinking of time in much longer intervals. Uh, that's my new project that I'm working on, a, a sort of ambient component to it where it's going to be soundscapes that stretch a bit. Um, stuff that I've never done because I've done a lot of fast music. I've done a lot of really in intensely changing music, rapidly changing filmic kind of things. But no, now it's I'm happy to do like single scene shots like my piece shelter that I posted recently that you had a very nice comment about on on uh, Facebook. So, you know, this is the thing when you get to get to this point, everything counts. But you've always been that kind of guy, haven't you? I mean, you, you make everything count. You 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 tried very much always to be completely immersed and dedicated to whatever projects you take yeah but i think the beautiful thing is that we're works in progress and you know i'm so full of like flaws and and misunderstandings and i'm i'm human and so i think the beautiful thing is to just infinitely go in that direction of which you speak and yes, I've always tried to concentrate on like good tone and slow music has always been my favorite music. Um, nothing wrong with um, loud and fast, but I'm, it, it doesn't move me as much as uh, slow. Not that dynamics have to be connected to the speed, but just as an example, I'm saying. But yeah, those are those are infinite pursuits that resonate with me that you're talking about. Yeah, and it's it's definitely um, a visual experience for me too. At the same time, I'm trying to find spaces mm. where I can be feel safe and spaces where I can dwell. Um, so much a part of this period has been building an environment for us to to exist in. I love that approach to building the environment. Yeah. I'm, I'm feeling increasingly like that. That's the artistry is building, uh, the environment for something to have a chance to exist. In it's, you know, in its best form. The time that we were given in this thing, I will say right now, 
has been a gift to me in that I have viewed time now, it became the fruition of this period in my life coming into this sense of time, that care, I mean, particularly for a detail-oriented person, anyone that's producing knows, like you're always up against like trying to get stuff done and get stuff out and get paid. But like now it's about like I can spend, I don't have anything else blocking me from spending more time on this idea till I get it the way I want. And that's been sort of the side blessing, if you will, of this whole, you know, side silver lining of this is like, I think we can really say that we, if we were using this time properly, we could go in and do some work and come out with some deep stuff. Maybe that could help us again, the beauty of the art perpetuating itself and, and that we're, you know, it's keeping us going and we're keeping it going and we're keeping each other going. And, you know, the world didn't stop, uh, but we thought we were able to spend more time and the gift of the time. Right. Having, having your family, what about having more time inside? Uh, I've ne I never had a problem with that anyway. So me too. <laughs> Worked out okay for us. Um, and the fact that we were able to make a living from home, but, but certainly this time to read more and, and cogitate more, uh, more musical ideas than ever. I mean, I, honestly, for me, I can't create unless I'm relaxed. The more stressed I get, the less the spigot will turn. Mm. So if I don't get it right in the right headspace, it's not going to happen or it's going to happen in some stilted way. But if I, if I'm totally relaxed and I'm, I feel like I'm in my, my dwelling, my, my space, you know how it is, right? You just connect and boom, you know, shh, download. Yeah. It, that's a very interesting subject. So do you feel the same way as performer as well? In terms of being relaxed and being, Oh good. yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's the thing though. And when do you ever get enough rehearsals? So, you know, it's that like feeds into that moment of like going for it. But I always want it to, to be a balance. Like that's why I like having bands, like bands that are ongoing, that know how to play together, that can put together pieces fairly quickly rather than, you know, this, I don't know that there would be pickup situations for my stuff, but just that idea of like, oh, I'm going to Oklahoma City. I better get a band together. So you're not doing that. But if you have an ensemble, you know, and you have the Miguel Atwood Ferguson ensemble, you know, that's a pool of players that know your way of doing things and have a sense of your sense of what the music is. Uh, I think that's been something I learned early on from the AACM guys in Chicago and the, the idea of having a pool of people. And then we did that in New York in the 80s. You know, it was a pool of people playing in different people's groups, looking to try to get a certain set of interests out there, at whatever available spaces we had at the time. That's the scene. That's any scene. And so your stuff, same idea, I think. It's just uh, a different set of venues and maybe a different location. But I always love the interest in the, the West Coast scene of, of the classical music. I think it's an important part of, of the music going forward in terms of jazz, in terms of improvisation. It was always about jazz and classical for me. Mm. It was always, like I always just felt like, uh, no, I never was against one or the other. I got lucky. I had 
probably had snobby teachers, but they didn't say, oh, you shouldn't be studying drum set. You know, my mallet teachers didn't think I shouldn't play drum set. My drum set teacher probably thought it's good to play, it's good to play mallets. So it was like, there was, there was no, there were no barriers in terms of what you're, you're like, you don't even know you're getting ready for a career. Mm. Like you need options, right? So if you have a teacher that says, we're going to play your piece in the high school band, as I did, as you did, we're going to play your, we're going to perform your piece. That is such an incredible affirmation to a young person. We were so lucky to have had that happen. I mean, tell me about that for you. That must have been amazing. Yeah, uh, I had my first symphonic piece uh, performed when I was 10, and it was the Palisade Symphony, and I have a cassette tape of it, and then I went to a school in Santa Monica uh, on scholarship. I didn't come from a wealthy family, um, in Crossroads in Santa Monica, where Austin Peralta went later, uh, 10 years after me. Oh. Um, uh, and Crossroads played tons of my compositions. So we had a, a world-class uh, string orchestra at Crossroads. And, and I played on the baseball team uh, for one year uh, or two years. And I also played bass and uh, viola in the jazz A band. So I was in heaven and the string orchestra, it'd be amazing. We'd be playing Bartok Divertimento uh, one day, and then one of my string orchestral pieces another day, and then Mahler, and just, we played incredible, incredible compositions by the, the greatest composers, and the conductor, Alexander Traeger, assistant uh, principal of the LA Phil, um, was an incredible, is an incredible violinist and conductor, and he had a, a good sense of humor and did well uh, with the kids. And so it, it was amazing. It's humbling, and uh, I've never been especially cocky um, or arrogant. I've never been impressed with myself. Um, uh, I just, so my point is I'm, I, I'm thankful that like I didn't get a big head or, or think that I wasn't, I didn't feel entitled. I didn't feel that, you know, of, of course, you know, this orchestra should play my music or something like that. Or I didn't, I didn't feel like I was, but I felt lucky as hell. Um, I felt like, um, I, I didn't feel like I was out of place being there, but my point is uh, echoing um, what you're talking about is how influential such a thing is. Um, and how that continues to inform the rest of my life. Uh, and, and just to know how special it is to, to ever have an ensemble, not only, not only play your music, but if they're going to rehearse it at all. And just to learn how to formulate uh, in a, a relationship with musicians and all the different characters, you know, like that, that could be another podcast is how, how to to maximize the experience for everybody based upon celebrating everyone's individual personality. You know, Miles Davis talking about let everyone's weaknesses and their strengths be a strength for the group. 
Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think we study band leaders to understand how to lead a band. And what you witnessed that worked would be, say, for instance, Ellington knowing to write in a certain register for Russell Procope. You have, you know, the Ellington being aware of all of those guys' strengths. Or you have Elliot Carter knowing all of the technical shortcomings and uh, possibilities on every instrument. You know, you have this, this sort of on what level are you going to get in? You know, you, you're going to go, get in at a certain level. You know, you're, you're going to want to explore extended techniques. You're going to want to explore all colorful possibilities. You know, you're going to want to organize on a very micro level. Uh, I think that that's, apart from writing opera, which I hear is the ultimate musical expression, my understanding is that uh, I'm trying to to hit on all these different levels of consciousness with what I'm doing, including the unconsciousness. I'm very into the whole dreamscape thing, and I have, you know, tapped into that on many occasions. It's a very important part of my work. So we'll say that, you know. Was that the same for you, Miguel? That's what my album's about. Le Jordan Mystique is basically like a bridge between all of these landscapes. Uh, the mystical gardens, uh, what I'm saying is that every track is a different mystical garden. And it mm. seems to me that we are part of an infinite energy and we might have like a finite life, but we have, we're, we're hitched or we're part of an infinite energy. And in that, I don't think there's a limit to how much we can discover and explore in via the vehicle of our life and so with each of these tracks on my album i'm trying to empower myself and empower anyone that listens to it um, to be able to crack open any uh blockages uh within what seems to me to be uh our own infinite uh universe and uh, so I'm, I'm also trying to give energy to the uniqueness of people. Uh, it seems to me that we all have so much in common, but we each have something very unique that we're bringing to the table. And I know there's a lot of wise and intelligent people that say things along the lines of, there's nothing new underneath the sun. Um, many wise and intelligent people have said that and say that, and I, I personally just disagree. I think that the, the particular combination um, of vibrations and molecules and thoughts that are us, it, we're actually bringing something new um, to the table. Uh, it might be completely directly connected to millions of people or just connected to so many other aspects of life. But I actually do think that I mean, I've never heard music before um, like yours, Greg. You know, it's I, I hear certain things that it makes me think of, but you're you are unique, and that's definitely something that I am interested in in doing. I'm trying to study history, like I said earlier, so that I can add something to the discussion. You know, that I think exists through antiquity. So I relate very much uh, to what you're saying, and uh, my whole album's based upon trying to 
energize myself and other people with getting in touch uh, with their, what I'm saying is infinite um, subconscious and unconscious. And I think it's like this infinite portal. So I, I think it's a very, very stimulating subject. I know that you're a visual guy because I know that on Facebook you often paint, uh, post paintings of some of my favorite artists. And I have always felt that those were on one level a scene, on one level they're a, a musical score because there clearly are rhythms involved. You know, there are clearly gradations of color and texture in these things. Paul Clay, always a favorite of mine. Uh, and I have a piece uh, dedicated to Arshil Gorky, the Armenian painter, called Frame the Invisible. Mm. And I've always been very interested in the visual connection to music. Something that happened to me at a very young age, as I was telling you, even if it was just animation. But eventually it just came through my whole life where everything has both a visual and a sonic component to me. Is that the case for you? Yes, but the visual isn't necessarily revealed to me at the moment, moment of inception. So sometimes it's just a little bit later. Sometimes the visual comes first. But another way to explain what I think you're talking about is a type of experience related to what work we're involved in that is not just music or it's not just visuals, it's connected to these other very important aspects of life. Um, so in that way, uh, everything I write um, and that I'm involved in, I'm bringing that to, to that experience and it's very important. You're uh, bringing a reality. Yeah, my, my perception of reality, my mindness uh, to it, yeah. Yeah, your point of view yeah. through everything that you lived and everything that you are. And that's what, you know, you're paying the ticket for, you know, that's what, yeah. you're, that's what you're on board for, really. That's what we were on board for with Hendrix, you know, yeah. I mean, that's what you're on board for, for each of these guys is, you know, I saw it time and time again. I knew it was like, we had a word jive. We used that word jive a lot in the seventies. But it was jive if you tried to like cop somebody else's shit. So like you would be tarred and feathered, run out of town. So like, it was really important for you to be like, well, what are you interested in? You should embrace what you're interested in because you're not going to be you know, doing what that guy's doing. You'll be laughed out of town. So to your point, it's like I always wanted to be myself musically. Mm. I knew there was no value necessarily. Even when I did repertoire, I tried to do something personal with it. So it reflected something of why I would do repertoire of that person or that composer, you know. So what does it mean to you? Everything is reflecting, refracting through you. Uh, and that's what, again, what we were asking artists to do. And it's a study in humanity for me, if I, if I were to be really honest and open about it. Like, you're talking about, yes, more happy people expressing themselves uh, you know, creatively and lovingly in the world would be a really amazing thing, you know, what, ready for that yesterday, you know, so that's the thing. And being that, manifesting that is its own pleasure, its own reward. And its own uh, courage. Yeah, yeah.
Uh, and so, you know, the fact that we still have some of the elders with us that are still doing their thing and, and you know, Jack D. Jeanette's still around, man. Watch out. <laughs> you know, that's that's very exciting to me that we exist during the same time as Jack T. Jeanette. <laughs> and yeah. Sonny Rollins is still on the planet. So, you know, there's still a lot of power in the music. I'm I'm loving that everyone is still moving forward with with their releases and their work as as I've done as well, you know, and feeling really happy that people are are collaborating. Yeah, you know, something you were saying um some minutes ago made me think of you were you were talking about the nature of this pandemic and making art and how it's awesome that um even though we have so many limits limitations right now we can still overdub is is one of the points you were making and so then i was thinking about it and something to me that's transcendent in what you're talking about is just doing your best and what does that mean to you it doesn't matter what someone else thinks uh i mean it can hopefully help us help us in some way or enhance our perspective but that that concept of doing your best i think is a transcendent very personal beautiful thing and it doesn't have to, it's not some like type of olympian type of mindset per se but just like what does that mean to you maybe maybe that means rest you know maybe he means you know do some cooking today but whatever that means i think is is something that i personally uh value a lot and i just think it's a very personal statement uh or it's not for anyone else to judge um uh, but us for, for our own life um and so during this pandemic um it's it's interesting it is it's brought up so many things but I refuse to think that it, it has to be just because there's in certain intrinsic difficulties and, and uh, uh, sad aspects, horribly sad aspects to it. In no way does that, does that mean that intrinsically the pandemic has to be only a negative thing um, with what we do with this time, for instance, for one. And you know, I really hope that we can learn so much Yes, and what it taught us about our weaknesses. Oh. What it what's teaching us about humanity, what it's teaching us, if you're paying attention, the, that you can learn from this moment because it's slowing you down and slapping you around a little bit and saying, hey, you know what, check this out, though. I think that's, that's the biggest thing. That's where I found some sense of place in all this that I have you know, done okay in this, and I should be very aware of that, and I should act accordingly. So, you know, that's that's important. Yeah, uh, uh, people are realizing it. I think that's a good thing, you know? Yeah. Heartening. Yeah. I, I, I would have thought more, there'd be a little bit more chaos than there is, and actually, I, you know, just mean to say that people have, I've seen a lot of rising above going on. Yeah, I'm not one of those people that thinks that human beings are intrinsically evil. I, I know a, a lot of people <laughs> that just uh, demonize human beings, and I don't blame them. <laughs> we human beings have uh, given uh, the people that think that uh, a lot of uh, 
fuel for their fodder and a lot of uh, proof of how horrible uh, we human beings can be. But I'm convinced that human beings are intrinsically good. If there's if there's such a good thing as good and evil, um, just good, you know, uh, happy, positive, you know, empathy, and that some of these horrible uh, behaviors are learned behaviors. Uh, you know, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like it's the best the case. And yeah, I, I'm encouraged by many things in the world. And uh, I, I will say this, I choose optimism as well. So I naturally feel optimistic, but then I also choose optimism. Um, you know, I, I think it's interesting you know, what we do with what we perceive to be a fact is very interesting. You know, I think there's so many different ways we can go with what we think is a fact. Um, well, we've certainly learned that. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, well, there's so many lies attached to what, you, you know, what you're referencing also. But, um you know, it's like, what are we, what are we choosing? You know, that's one thing I'm, I've been researching a lot is we're just contemplating and questioning. It's like, well, what's my narrative? And you choose your own narrative, by the way. Yeah. So you can certainly accept narratives from others, but the ability to choose one's narrative has probably saved my life. So I have to say like, that's something you can just keep telling people maybe like, try to do that uh, and, and try to be, you know, nice to people on the way. But I, I do believe you when you say that. Yeah, so I have to, um, you know, question myself lovingly, like, how much truth is in my narrative? And uh, so I, I find that empowering. And um, the more I do it, the less intimidated um, I am in general about lovingly uh questioning myself um because it's coming from a place of strength and in, in that in that way um so to be able to see like oh wow actually this part of my narrative is just false and it's just you know coming from this place and then being able then to be like okay cool well now i choose to you know exchange it with with this uh, or make that change and you know, so when you're talking about um, Jimi Hendrix a minute ago and like music that is, you know, transcendent of just like, you know, like notes or something, but it's, it's connected to, if I was understanding you correctly, it's like you're saying that it's, uh, this is, this is about life, you know, and like what, not just like what type of human being are we, but what type of, what type of life um, is meaningful to us, you know, and so that's definitely... The, the music that I find most stimulating um, is uh, it's not just academic, nothing wrong with academia, but at a certain point, I just don't want to be, uh, you know, confined to any world, you know, I want to be like visceral and, you know, I want to hear music and it make me think of a type of uh, food, you know, or a, an experience I, you know, I had. You know, uh, filmmakers are very inspiring to me, Miguel. And one in particular is Guillermo del Toro. Oh, yeah. Del Toro is such a badass. And one of the things that he says, I think is very important when we're talking about art and artists, 
He likes guys that get high on their own supply. I think that's the the very essence of what we're talking about. Like, you know, yeah. I knew that nobody else in 2000, 2001 gave a shit about comic books or Jack Kirby. That's 20 years ago. The comic book market and the interest of, of fans in who did what and who created what. But I knew that I was going to do this project honoring Jack Kirby created, you know, three quarters of the Marvel Universe at a time when they were still arguing over his estate for the 20th year. So that's the thing. And it was a joy. And it's still, to me, one of the greatest joys of my my career and my life, because it turns out there were other people that were interested in that. But it just took them a little while to sort of go, hey, you know what? Jazz and comic books are related. They're both uniquely American art forms. They're both even uh, sort of percolating around the same time. Wynn Shorter talks about it quite frequently. Yeah. And I've luckily been able to speak with Wayne about that for Yale. But anybody that's into that and sees that that was sort of the beginning of my visual world, too. I'm listening to music and, and, and rifling through comic books. You know, that, that, that it's always, uh, even in, Mar in the case of Marvel, very moral tales, very sort of complex tales. So I was responding to even a whole culture of growing up with a, a, a moral system of right and wrong that was portrayed in those comic books by largely Jewish, Jewish authors and creators, which is interesting. And that, that changed. But, you know, that's something that was in there in, in all the DC comic book stuff, too. Hmm. But but that idea of you know responding to your I, I and I hope that I'm always responding to my childhood in a way mm, because it connects. I love me, that. You know what I mean? It yeah. connects me to a joy, an unbridled joy of experience. The first this. Yes. So who said you couldn't? You know you didn't know you couldn't. So that frame of mind too of the dreamer uh, that I was falling asleep in, in, in grammar school or even high school, what I'm th dreaming about, what I'm working on, what I'm thinking about, the creative mind. Listening to music going to sleep, by the way, for a number of years was probably a really important thing in my life. I forgot about that. I, I did the same thing and I had repeat tapes. And as a infant, my uh, parents had repeat tapes of like Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, Tchaikovsky, Chopin uh, playing in my room. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Going to sleep though, playing playing music. The other thing I wanted to say uh, about about comics, um, imagination and superpowers. Uh, in in a minute, a couple months ago, I said you know possibility. You know, so I just think these are, I think they're very spiritual, very uh, applicable things to our everyday life. And I, I think we're all superheroes. I, I think that all of us. We certainly all each have our individual powers and weaknesses. <laughs> right. And I think that there's no limit to them. Yeah. How something can be our kryptonite or something can empower us or... You know, like uh, when we really believe something, the depth of that belief 
I think is a superpower. And there's the side of it that also might have a, a kryptonite, but these I think are uh, so applicable to each of us, regardless of uh, whether like we're religious or not. Uh, I just think it's, it's so beautiful. And so to get those wheels turning, I think can be very free, freeing because we, we, we often feel so misunderstood uh, either in our families or at the school that we, you're talking about being a child or, you know, I've spent the, the first 20 years of my life feeling incredibly alienated. Yeah. Uh, and so it's so beautiful, like how something like comics um, or art can help us get in touch with our own place in, in the multiverse. For sure. And, and when I was working on that project, I got to thank Stan Lee, who gave me an aligner quote. I got to thank him for Marvel's vocabulary. Wow. Because they always had really good high level vocabulary. You might have to look up a word. You'd certainly get the context of it. They did not write down. And that was Stan. That was his, oh, okay, that came from him, okay. Yeah, yeah, Stan wanted it to be really well written as, as possible. And when he wrote, he could write in different styles, different voices, you know. His Silver Surfer writing, I always love that, his pseudo-spiritual religious writing for this outer space character who looks at the world and says, what have you guys done, <laughs> you know? That, that, that connected too, I mean, that, in a way, that was our religion was the comic book characters that we encountered that we connected to whatever their ethos was. Wow. Was he the bad guy outsider or was he the, the observer, the watcher, you know, was he street level or was he cosmic? Like we were into all the different gradations of, of all these different characters. And of course that's what Marvel was. They all are really, are you, are you in space or are you on earth? Are you on another world? Are you in a different dimension? And of course, that's the multiverse that you speak of. And so that's also the, the quest for variety that I think we have in terms of perception. That if you really want variety of perception and, and the fact that you've traveled and you've seen well, the people in Egypt see the world quite differently from the people in Iowa. You know, if you sort of have realize all these different realities and you're processing them, that's evolution, I think. That's the evolution of, of consciousness is accepting more and sort of dealing, right? You're dealing on more levels, you're sensitive, you're I, like Steve Hillage would say, you're tuning into different vibrational levels. And you're able to process it. But I able to that, process it and come, come to a positive result, you know? And you're able to integrate it in a highly functioning way that will benefit you and your family. You know, I feel like the more closed-minded we are, we come up against uh, a vibe or a thought that doesn't feel good to us. We might just like, you know, put up a wall or we might just dismiss it. And, you know, may maybe there's a time and place to do that. But I feel like the more evolved we are, we have the skills to be able to be like, okay, well, um, let me consider this and it, if it doesn't work for me, that's okay. That doesn't mean I have to like dismiss that person or dismiss that thought. It just, uh, it's, it's, it's like the ocean. The, the ocean doesn't push away the waters of the river. You know, the ocean figures out a way to integrate 
all the energy and all the, the, the makeup of all the different waters, even when there's like salt water uh, coming together with uh, fresh water, um, it, find, it does this very interesting ballet. It's very interesting. So maybe that's another level when uh, Bruce Lee says, be like water, maybe that's another level to that. Maybe, and there's also a really beautiful transition that you teed up for me, which is, speaking of which, what about Jay Dilla? Yeah, yeah, Aquarius and definitely like water. So uh, Jay Dilla uh, comes from a, a very musical family. His father, uh, a bassist and uh, I believe a singer also and uh, voice coach and his mom, uh, amazing singer and uh, born in Detroit, 1974. And um, uh, my favorite all time hip hop producer and I never met him. Uh, a lot of my friends met him and worked with him. And I became familiar with his work, uh, not knowing it was his. Uh, I was, like a lot of my friends, um, just a fan of hip hop. Um, but I was a classical geek in high school, just becoming obsessed with jazz and just full on becoming obsessed with jazz. Um, and I was listening to A Tribe Called Quest, an amazing, amazing hip hop ensemble. And Jay Dilla did a lot of the production for them. But I, I still didn't know it was Jay Dilla. I would just listen to the record and sometimes look is, at the liner notes. Is Tribe Called Quest early Dilla? Uh, I guess you could say that's early Dilla. Dilla started um, in 92 making his, his more internationally available music. And um, the the work with Tribe Called Quest, I want to say 1996 was the first time that something was uh, re released uh, commercially. Um, maybe it was slightly earlier than that. Um, couldn't have been before 94. But uh, so I was listening to this music and really enjoying it and in hearing some of the jazz music that I loved being sampled in there. Um, and so then once I went to college and then graduated college, uh, I met my good friend Carlos Nino, who uh, is uh, an incredible uh, multi-instrumentalist producer and music historian too, record collector. And he's um, really helped educate me uh, in a lot of different ways. And he um, and I came up with this initial concept that I ran with and, and took over, but it was initially um, uh, inspired by, by both of us. And um, we were making a list of all the people that we wanted to do orchestral projects with. And he was friends with Dilla and uh, acquaintances with Dilla. And Dilla was either number one on our list, definitely in our top three. I think he was number one on our list of somebody that we were going to approach saying that uh, he was going to be like the featured artist, I was going to be the music director, and Carlos was going to be the producer. And he died uh, of lupus-related causes, um, I think in 2006, um, before we approached him. And so a year, the year after he died, we released one single because we're like, you know what, we have this project, we believe in it too much, we're just going to go ahead and do it anyway. So we released the first single the year after he died. Um, and that was uh, 
very celebrated and that led to a four song EP and that led to a concert and the concert um, uh, is called Sweet Vermont Dukes um, as part of the Timeless series produced by Mochilla and that was with the symphonic orchestra. I wrote all the music and handpicked all the players and wrote all the arrangements and it featured Thundercat on bass and Cream Riggins on drums and some of the MCs that Dilla worked with and it it brought another side or multiple other sides um, of music and life to that music that wasn't previously there and people dug it and uh, you know I'll say this it there's so many beautiful ways to do a tribute I don't think there's an incorrect way um, I mean the better intentions we have I think the better it is but um, the route we took was not trying to recreate. There's nothing wrong, in my opinion, uh, doing a tribute to somebody and recreating it. Um, that's fine. That's great. There's a place for that. But our approach for this particular tribute, I think, um, had its strength because of the approach we took, which was to not try to recreate, but just try to be, to celebrate that music and celebrate that person, celebrate his family, celebrate all the music that was going in, into the music he was sampling and, and, and dealing with, uh, celebrate it in a way that was most sincere to us. Uh, so it had a lot of my original music in there and it, it, I, I flipped things uh, quite a lot. So yeah, Jay, Jay Dilla, is, uh, he, he passed in 2006, but he's um, alive and, and doing well uh, in many people's hearts and minds, and uh, he continues to take on steam. What is his impact on the music? When you say the, what it define the in that sense? What is his impact on music? On music today? Yeah. Uh, I, well, I'm not an authority, and I don't. I'm not aware enough um, to answer that question, but just for shits and giggles, if I was to, to answer that question to the best of my abilities, uh, for you then, for, for me, um, one of the biggest influences is Jay Dilla and he, he's transcendent. So he came, he was operating in, in a hip hop world, but he was not trying to fit in. Nothing wrong with fitting in, but that was not his goal. He was, uh, he, he was so huge that he definitely was transcendent of just hip hop. He was dealing with world music. Uh, he, he was dealing with, uh, when people think of drum machines, people, some people might think of, okay, well you just press it on and off. <laughs> Someone might, might be that ludicrous to think that. Uh, yeah, maybe sometimes it's as simple as pressing on and off, but definitely um, Jay Dilla was not doing that. So He made he a the, musical instrument. Completely. And so he had the quantize button turned off and he was, you know, he, uh, my favorite drummer is Elvin Jones and he, Jay Dilla to me has a similar feel to Elvin. Um, I don't know how often Elvin's dealing with quintuplets. I know Elvin deals with a lot of triplets, but uh, I, I get a lot of quintuple vibe and uh, triplet vibe from Elvin. Yeah. And I get that same type of vibe uh, from Jay Dilla. 
And um, so Jay Dilla uh, was able to include such a tremendous feeling that was very singular and unique to him um, that was so influential on like hip hop, R&B, uh, uh, he was taking like rock, hip hop, R&B, soul, world music, gospel. Uh, his favorite artist growing up was James Brown. And so there's like this heavy James Brown influence on Dilla's music. Um, uh, and so it's, he's kind of like the, um, he's kind of like ground zero of all like these meeting points in uh, American music and not just American, but like modern music. Um, and so he was able to like bring it together. And so uh, obviously there's millions of people that have never heard Jay Dillon, never heard his music, but um, I think he's one of the biggest influences on modern music and somebody that's just not popular, but is um, a, a true artisan, you know, uh, when Tribe Called Quest uh, was getting a Grammy and he was nominated for a Grammy. He didn't, he didn't want to go to the Grammys, you know, nothing wrong with the Grammys, but I'm just saying that one time, you know, that however many hours it would have took for him to go to Grammys. He's like, no, I want to be creating. Like, um, you know, he's a, a, a genuine artisan, somebody that was always in the laboratory, always searching um died when he was so young like 32 years old or something but um already had like five or six distinct periods in in his uh, in his life and he was very prolific um so for for me and the people that are um close to me uh he's definitely one of the most influential artists uh of like the last 150 years or something that's incredible. And he had a good feeling. He had like a, a good, there was like a, a positive jubilant, you know how like Wynton Kelly has like a jubilant feeling and like Herbie has a jubilant feeling sometimes. And it's not that you can't have sad music. I mean, I love sad music. You know, I want like a full expression. No, I love the idea of a, just a jubilant feeling in music. Absolutely. You, I mean, I think everyone should have one, you know, I have my version of it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, you yeah. got to, because it, it, otherwise there's no dark. If you you gotta have light and dark, I feel. Yeah, yeah, and I. All right. Do you think that dark only exists because there's light, and vice versa too? Like, uh, they're both important, and they're both in each other. Um, yeah, there's certainly gradations, but I think that there's there's evidence in my life that there's very dark. Uh, forces, events, energy, and there's very light and bright uh, energy and activity. And, and sort of, you know, if you can see that in your life, you can certainly manifest that in your music more effectively. Uh, my sense of dark in music is, is very, very dark. But I like extremes, you know, like I have very, very light and bright sounds that I'm interested in with, with you know, with bells and, and bowed percussion and things like that but I also love me some bass. So like, I want, I want that range. Like, uh, any, I think you're talking about the extremes of Prokofiev. I think that's, that's the best. 
because also, you know, people don't, people forget, like, you go up there, there's not, you're not getting in the way of anything up there. You know, that's like, that's prime real estate up there. If you want to really go up there and create something up there, it can hang and it's coexist with things that are so obviously, yeah, you want, I want the full canvas. You know? Yeah. I'll take the full paint box and the large canvas. Yeah. Definitely. Right? Yeah, in in uh, my own expression too, you know, one of the things that I can't stand is if, uh, even if it's high level to me or uh, it's it's made well, if all the stuff I'm creating sounds similar, I I can't stand that. And so I'm always trying to expand you know, who I am as a person and uh, my ability to write music and play tones that give like a very, very varied, diverse uh, expression that is very important to me. It never ceases to amaze me how I can listen to an album of a truly great artist and all the songs sound so similar. And that's okay. It's definitely okay. It's one of the options. It's one of the options. I just don't want that to be my only option. Yeah, there's a song cycle, there's a set, whatever you want to say. I know, but that's right. I want all the options. I want to have, have the ability, the technique. I want to have the technique if I want to be able to have like a lot of diversity to be able to do that. And I just don't want to get locked in to just having, oh, this is what I like and this is just the one thing I do. I, to me, that, 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 that's very not enjoyable. Right. And things to look forward to and, and having a list of projects that you want to get to and dream projects and always looking to collaborate with more and more people that, that you admire, you know, and I want to collaborate with you. <laughs> Let's do it. I want to email you some of my album and uh, see if any of the sections are speaking to you and see if you can play any variety of instruments. I would certainly be open to that. I'd love it. Well, thank you uh, for considering that. Um, I will be very selective with your time and as respectful as humanly possible. And uh, when I get closer, I'll uh, pick a, a couple sections and uh, send them your way and see if they're speaking to you. Um, I can't think of any instrument that I've heard you play that I don't just completely admire and adore. But one of those instruments is the way you play the vibraphone. <laughs> Damn. You really, I mean, you speak on every instrument just uh, very deeply, but you play the vibes in a way that I've never heard anyone play the vibes, just like your clarity and just everything. Your, the uniqueness of your approach is um, extremely awesome and profound. That's so sweet. Thank you. I love the vibraphone. I think it's it's a forlorn instrument. I think you ha you got to give the vibraphone some love. Um, you know, I, I didn't want to be a pianist. I could I didn't really have that, but I wanted to be able to play chords and, <laughs> and melodies. And I wish it would go lower in register. You know. 
because I just love the lower register of the vibraphone. But I can tell you that I, I'm going through my archive right now, Miguel, of, of the 35 years we were talking about and trying to transfer some of it. And a, a show from 98 or 96 came up from Chicago and I was doing a solo tour where I would get in my car like a Dodge Dart and I had a vibraphone and a drum set. And I had this, I, I can't remember what I called it, something like plates and cylinders or whatever. So it was going to be drum set solo composition, vibraphone solo composition, A, B, A, B for an evening, you know, and that's what I was, was touring. And I pulled out this, uh, uh, the guy that's transferring stuff for me, sent me this vibraphone solo and I listened to it. It was following a drum set solo. That's so what was that tour. And I thought, I really got seriously into this vibraphone thing. Um, in, and in a way, I felt like not a lot of people were pushing the instrument. And one time Alex Klein, our buddy, was playing me a group that he had with a, a vibraphonist, uh, some other a vibraphonist. And I was listening to it and I said to Alex, I'm listening to this vibraphonist and I guess I only now realize how extreme I was. And he says, Greg, no one was more extreme on the vibraphone than you. <laughs> and I just thought, well, I'll listen to you. You know, you have some input. Certainly he's, he's, he's been my, my drummer whenever I play vibraphone. And, um, and I always also thought of it as a orchestral instrument. So, you know, you're going to get into articulation. You're going to get into bowing. You're going to get into motor speed or no motor. You're going to get into preparations. Why wouldn't you? You know, um, so there's a lot of vibraphone music. I appreciate you noticing that. I, I've done a lot of vibraphone music, vibraphone in different settings. I love it. It's funny because I always wanted to do vibraphone marimba, but it was impossible live to tour vibraphone marimba. And we were always looking to do gigs, you know, so you could have like marimba on recordings, as you'll notice. But apart from Bobby um, Hutcherson, like, you know, who was going out with vibraphone and marimba? Well, there was Double Image, I think Dave Samuels and Dave Friesen. There were, there were a couple of different groups like that tried to have Gong, of course had vibraphone and marimba a lot in their music, but, but a lot of groups, you couldn't get that. You couldn't tour that. They're, you're talking about jazz music with a huge gear component, but percussion uh, was a really big thing too of my time, right? So the explosion of percussionists in the seventies was huge. And that influenced all my thoughts about vibraphone and all my influences. Can, can, can percussion lead a band? Can you have a band where percussion is a, is a featured instrument or is it a color instrument? You know, so like all these questions are coming to mind. Like, can I go up against a guitarist like Nels Klein? <laughs> you know, live. You know, so then you figure out processing. You figure out whatever you got to figure out different. You know, sometime I'll show you my mallet collection. <laughs> Ooh. But that's like our thing, you know, like we're, we're, we're always looking at color and articulation and tone and timbre and texture, everything that that you would want. 
I'll tell you one thing that you specialize in that I personally uh, am attracted to uh, in any musician, how you navigate in between notes. So some people say, well, that is what music is. <laughs> uh, it makes me think of people like Monk and Mozart, but specifically on the vibraphone, the way that you allow the notes to breathe, to exist, and to be in dialogue with each other to me is extremely profound and extremely uh, enjoyable. Thank you. It's definitely a primary concern to make all those things happen, you know? But you allow, it, it takes so much, um, you know, we were talking about like listening and like space. Mm. I think it takes a lot of balls to be able to let a note exist in our anxiety and in our neediness, so often we just jump in with another note or we crowd the space. And so I really appreciate it when, when anybody of any genre allows space. You know, my, my friend Jamiah Williams, an amazing drummer and producer, he posted something on Instagram uh, a year or two ago where he said, let's create some space so we can space out you know yeah. so if there's no space there how how's the listener supposed to be able to like enjoy putting their own energy and experience into what they're listening to it's like yeah there's room for them to have their own experience think about the opening moment of the fawn by Debussy what happens after those that first opening salvo? Complete space, mm. silence, right? Mm. Then you're going on right from that moment, and they and he and you wait. Mm. That's the greatest lesson for me. Like this guy had the balls to mm. stop his piece before it got started, to put that in there to say, "Hey, listen." I'm not, I'm not doing anything yet. Boom. I don't know, man. I mean, per, also, I don't find that percussionists influence me that much because I thought the idea was to not be a drummer, drummer or a percussionist guy was to be an instrumentalist on your instrument in the way other guys were. That was a big concern for me too. Like I say, to be able to keep up with guitarists. But the idea of, you know, it fitting into a string ensemble, I have pieces for vibraphone and strings, you know, so like there's ways of, of joining and, and bridging. Right. So I, that's, that's the journey too. And that's why I've always loved viola. I want more bands with viola. Mm. You know what I mean? Like viola is the vibraphone, you know, connection for me. Mm. Pretty similar range. You go down to F? Well, I only go down to F, though. Mm -hmm. But but just the idea of the sort of a, a unique sounding instrument in the percussion family, a unique, because I don't think of the viola as a big violin, you know. So 
the viola has a uniqueness, I think, similar to, to the vibraphone. So if you ever, I, my first choice would have been, I was psychically saying, oh, vi I'd play vibraphone for Miguel stuff. I mean, wow. you know, yeah. Like, cause I also, I have a really beautiful instrument. It's a, it's an important thing for me was that I have a beautiful set. Cause I, I toured for years with a beat up Deegan. And when I was able to finally get a, a deal with Musser to come on board with them, I got the vibraphone of my dreams. It, it traveled well, but the key that I, I had gone through different sets of keys. When I play these keys, they ring and beautifully. And so you fall in love with the decay. Mm. So it's not like you're going to defeat decay when you're listening to decay. That's so nice. The way things will it's sort decay. of beat, you know, they'll beat beautifully. And the upper register is so different from just it's it, I think of it really as a, as a three, at least three ranges registers within it. And I try to bring out the different ranges. So the thing about it is then I extended it to include glockenspiel. Ooh. So I got a I got a marching glock where both and both keys are are screwed down at the node so they don't flip up the way an orchestral glock would. And I now extended the vibraphone to the top of the piano with the glock. Oh okay. So oh, and I write for it and I improvise with it. So that I may, and then of course I really love Glockenspiel. It's so love nice. Glockenspiel. Like it's and not even other bells or the other things that I'm obsessed with. Of course, Glock, yeah. A good Glock, and then also I've I've become partial to uh, the antique symbols, the Cretales. They're oh. different. Wow, the ones that are like a little bit thick. Yeah, the thick the thick discs. Yeah. And you can bow those and those also, yeah. you know, play with beautifully with different types of mallets. Oh, you've gotten me got down a rabbit hole there, buddy. But uh, <laughs> I, I appreciate the kind words. Uh, certainly, um, uh, vibraphonists are a breed unto themselves in a way. Yeah, and, and percussionists. You guys are often uh, my favorite composers. And yeah, Joe Chambers is another one. Oh, Joe, yeah. Tony Williams, but Joe Chambers obviously played uh, or plays uh, uh, vibraphone and uh, marimba. Yeah, and don't forget, ego. Tony Williams has two percussionists with him, and it it was on, is what I'm saying. Alex Klein will tell you the same thing. We're seeing all of our favorite gear on stage in a number of bands, <laughs> and we're thinking, yeah, colors personalities, different ways of using. Per so it, it was an extension of orchestration. In fact, it, I think percussion ensemble for me was early orchestration. Mm. And then when I got to college and I studied orchestration, I kind of could deal with it pretty well because I had already looked at the percussion ensemble pieces from high school in terms of register and in terms of, you know, how you could organize a percussion ensemble uh, arrangement of a classical piece. So now you're thinking, oh, the bass marimba, oh, glockenspiel, oh, triangle, you know, whatever it would be. And and so percussion, luckily, it was considered really hip at that time. I don't know if, I mean, it still is, obviously, but I just mean like it was sort of a first. Well, yeah, I just come back to that uh, Planet of the Apes uh, series. Yeah. 
that's how could you not have that percussion on that soundtrack you needed it for that soundscape and uh, you know i'm not so uh versed on or orchestral music it's, it's my passion and I, I'm obsessed with it, but I'm not uh, so versed on like, you know, everything that's been written. But before, I'm trying to think of the, the stuff written that includes uh, the most diverse percussion that's the most interesting to me um, before the Planet of the Apes um, series. Um, Raul Tavara, Ludoslavsky, Dutio, and then that early Stravinsky stuff, like the, the great ballets. I mean, that, that's all my favorite stuff that, that uses the most um, varied and it's the most interesting use of percussion that I've heard. For I'll throw time. a couple in there though, that are important. And that's the Varese orchestral percussion stuff okay. and, the, and the Varese percussion ensemble piece ionization. Um, Varese's use of percussion really did bring it into the 20th century in a big way. Mm. sort of set it as an equal voice in the ensemble in mm. the orchestra mm. you know five percussionists with big setups and on Amérique, on arcana these big you know 150 people orchestra pieces and he really knew his percussion sounds he'd bring out lion's roar he'd bring out you know uh, uh straw brushes i mean he had specific textures in mind very wow. painterly in a way, I thought. Uh, so yeah, you're right. But the, but but Vereza and Stravinsky kind of track in an interesting way regarding Paris, regarding that time period, the twenties even, and what they're trying to do with the new modernism. I think no one was more modern than Vereza at that point, though. To be frank, that's what it sounds like. You know, because yeah. you're if you're embracing rhythm and, and dissonance in the way that Varez was at that point in the 20s, 25, 30, uh, you know, that's yeah, obviously arguably post La Sacra. And, and you're talking about Stravinsky taking one definitely for the team to bring things into modernism. But anybody that's view, doing large scale stuff post Wagner, like mm -hmm. Varez was. I think is pretty subversive because Varez was just painting pictures. He, he wasn't, he wasn't trying to have you fall in love with his melodies and his emotional, you know, uh, repartee with you. It was about uh, a sonic experience. Mm, it's yeah. a sonic I, experience. I was just thinking about Messiaen and uh, Copeland yeah. as well. But um, I guess Messiaen has a, a lot more in common. Uh, Copeland, some of Copeland's more adventurous works around, you know, uh, those uh, early years were more in, in this type of discussion. And then he went into this beautiful, spacious um, place. Um, but he, Copeland is, is an interesting one too. But um, we're gonna have to do this again because unfortunately I have to um, <laughs> go. I I, I thought I know, it was gonna be like an hour long, but I just every time we talk, I just uh, don't want the conversation to end. Man, I gotta ask you before we split. Did you work with Sly Stone? And I had a dream about it beforehand too. It was really weird. So I um, 
I was I had my ensemble doing a, a tribute uh, to uh, music of the, the 70s. And um, one of my singers um, is an incredible singer uh, and DJ named Novena Carmel. And she's like, yeah, I'll tell my dad about it. Um, he might roll through. And so I was just telling myself, okay, don't get too excited, Miguel, but you know, be prepared. And, um, and so I was having her sing my favorite Sly Stone uh, song, If You Want Me To Stay. And she was doing an incredible job. She, she's really awesome. And she was, she was nailing it. And so we, we had like two days of rehearsals uh, and, then, uh, and then the show. So three days in a row. And so then the night before the show, I had a dream that Sly uh, came with George Clinton uh, to my show and got up on stage. Um, and it was such a vivid dream, Greg, that I told people about it. And I said, look it, I had a dream about it last night. So if it happens, I'm not gonna be that surprised. <laughs> that happened, that George Clinton and Sly Stone got up on stage and just partied with us on stage during that and we just jammed out we kind of just extended it and so um yeah and uh actually the the way that it happened was so we had a first half and a second half so it was an amazing first half i go down to my dressing room and slice on george clinton and no one else is just waiting in my dressing room and i'm like hey guys <laughs> And they were, they were just so cool. Just, you know, um, I don't think they knew who I was. I don't, I don't blame them. But They were at the gig to hang and party. Yeah. And there was just like a lot of people there. Um, but when I walked into my own dressing room, I don't, I don't think it dawned upon them that, you know, that was my gig, you know, which is awesome. And uh, it was, it was, it was, they were so cool. And then, in the second half, they, they got up on stage and what did you guys talk about? Just how cool Novena was and uh, just thanks for being there. Uh, it was it was not a long conversation. They were they were just like incredibly, you know, old good friends. And so I didn't want to break up their um, their reunion of sorts. And uh, Shugi Otis was there. Uh, so George was there, um, uh, and it was, yeah, Ndugu Chancellor was playing oh, drums, wow. um, Durf Reklaw was on percussion, um, Fred Walker spelled backwards, Durf Reklaw, um, it was amazing, Kamasi was playing tenor in my group, um, yeah, so I just, I, we didn't, we didn't talk a, a lot, but yeah, that was, that, that was a nice night. That's incredible. I think that's a really good place to stop with an uplifting dream tale that came true. Wow. Yeah, we're, we're lucky just to be alive. What a magical existence. And, you know, I'm, I'm just very happy to be exploring the cosmos uh, through word and sound and vibrations with you. Thank you so much for your time. It's an honor uh, to speak with you. And please have me anytime. And in the meantime, I want to be preparing uh, some sections of my album for you to see uh, if I'm lucky enough for you to, to grace my album.
I look forward to it, my friend. Thank you for all the good energy over the years. Since the moment we, we collaborated, I, I felt a, a, a close bond with you artistically and, and humanistically, you know. Thank so you. thank you for all that excellence and enthusiasm and uh, deep commitment to making a positive contribution in the world and, and in art. Thank you. I'm Love you. Glad you feel that way. <laughs> Keep it going, man. And, and I look forward to our collaboration. So yeah. thank you for listening, everybody. My guest has been Miguel Atwood Ferguson. Mm -hmm. Peace. Peace. Mm -hmm.